Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. Um, we thank you that we are um, here to gather to worship you. Lord, would Christ be exalted today? Would he be our focus in our hearts, in our minds? Um, and would, be, would we be encouraged um, to look to him now, um, even as we read the story of Joseph? In your name, amen. Um, so today, um, we'll be in Genesis. We'll be covering um, a pretty famous story that maybe probably most of you have um, read at least once. Um, that is the story of Joseph. Um, this is found specifically in Genesis uh, chapters 37 to 50, so it rounds out the book. Um, and in your outline, I put a rough timeline there um, that I hope is helpful. Um, as we focus in on these chapters, I won't be covering all 14, um, just for time's sake, there's, there's no way I would be able to do that. Um, I will, however, attempt to provide a sort of overview of Joseph's, um, a significant moment in Joseph's life and, and the, the events that occur um, around on the book of Genesis, because I think it's, um, in order to read the story of Joseph right, we first need to know um, how to read the book of Genesis as a whole. Um, there are numerous ways the book can be divided. Uh, one way, it's, it's sliced up um, by something called a toledot, which is a Hebrew word, um, and these uh, provide us a framework that tells us a lot about the preceding narrative. So um, these toledots show us who the important characters are. There's sort of scenes where um, when we see this phrase, there's a shift in the story, um, and there are, there's 11 of them. So every time you see in the book of Genesis the phrase, the generations of, um, that's a Toledot in Hebrew. So 11 of them, um, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, the uh, generations of the heavens and the earth. Generation, generations of Adam, chapter 5, verse 1. Generations of Noah, chapter 6, verse 9. Generations of Noah's sons, chapter 10, verse 1. Generations of Shem, chapter 11, verse 10. Generations of Terah, chapter 11, uh, verse 27, generations of Ishmael, uh, chapter 25, verse 12, generations of Isaac, uh, chapter 25, 19, generations of Esau, chapter, 30, chapter 36, 1, and again in chapter 36, verse 9. Um, and then there's one more Toledo in the book of Genesis. The last key character, does anyone know who this is? Is it Joseph? Someone said it. Jacob, you're right. It is. Um, generations of Jacob, that starts in Genesis chapter 37, verse 2. So that's where we're going to be. Um, so based on the literary structure alone, um, we have a key um, that, that's sort of helping us. Um, so we need to keep this in mind. Um, another way this book is broken up is by recurring themes. So Genesis is broken up um, by these sort of lampposts that help us. Themes of land, seed, and covenant. From the beginning, even from the creation account, we see God creates the heavens and the earth, right? We have the land. He creates plants, and everything multiplies via seeds. And we um, see him create Adam in chapter 2, and now we get a covenant between God and Adam. So even in creation, we see land, we see seed, we see covenant. This continues on uh, even in the fall. We see man kicked out of what? The land. Um, but there's a covenant, and then in that covenant, there's a promised seed. Um, so we see this all over the place in Genesis, again and again, um, recurring themes of land, seed, um, covenant. 
We see with Abram, Genesis 12, what happens there. We have a covenant about what? Well, God says, I'm going to make you a nation, seed, and also I'm going to give you a land. Land, seed, covenant, it's all over the place in Genesis. And the promised seed continues to move forward, to move towards the promised land, the land that is theirs by covenant. So if we put these two things together and think about the book of Genesis, um, let's read um, the story of Joseph. Again, many of us may have read this story before, but um, let's try and read it with this narrative framework and, and just fresh eyes. Um, so here we are, uh, Joseph. Uh, there are three pairs of dreams in Joseph's life. Uh, first pair of dreams that he shares with his brothers, um, and it doesn't go so well. His brothers hate him for it, actually. They, utter, they utterly despise him. Um, and they already hate him before the dreams. Why? Because he's the favorite son. Uh, Jacob, when he looks at his children, sees Joseph um, as his favorite, and he gets a fancy robe, right? And now there's this dream, and his brothers take it. Well, what, we're, we're going to bow down to you? Um, no, they're not having that. Uh, so when they get the opportunity, they decide in their jealousy that they're going to kill him. But they don't. They actually reformulate their plan and decide instead to uh, sell him into slavery. Again, this is because of him being the favorite son, and it's compounded uh, by this dream, these dreams he has. Another pair of dreams occur when he's in prison. Uh, two servants of the king, uh, two servants of Pharaoh, um, and he interprets their dreams. Um, one excellent, um, the other not so much, right? One, you're getting your job back. The other, you're going to die. Um, and, um, and it happens. Um, then Pharaoh has two dreams, and he can't interpret these dreams. No one can, actually. Um, and all of a sudden, that guy that got his job back um, remembers Joseph. Wait, I know, I know a guy in prison that can interpret dreams. Um, so Joseph comes before Pharaoh and interprets these dreams, right? And there's the healthy corn and the sick corn, the healthy cows, the sick cows. Um, and all of a sudden, here comes the sick corn eating the healthy cow eating the healthy corn and the sick cows, eating the healthy cows. And Joseph says there's going to be a famine. Um, there, there are going to be years of plenty, and then there are going to be, be seven years of famine. So what you'll need to do is store up um, during those seven years of plenty so you have enough food for those seven years of famine. And that's where we're going to pick up here. We're going to be in Genesis 41. Uh, we're going to start Genesis 41, verse 37. Um, Again, let's read the story with that narrative framework we started with. Um, and one of the takeaways um, listed on your outline, you're going to see right away. Um, there's an irony here, and, and Moses is pointing this out. It's very, very specific. Um, so let's read. Genesis 41, verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. We got to stop right there. I know we didn't get that far. Um, why is this ironic? Why, why do his brothers hate him? His, his brothers hate him because God gives him a dream. He interprets it rightly. And that's confirmed by the fact that he gets the prisoners and Pharaoh's dream, dreams correct. So Joseph's brothers hate him for giving them um, the word of God. And Joseph... Um, Interpreting these dreams is not just him guessing. He's, he's not doing this by his own um, fruition, but it's by the sovereign hand of God that he's able to articulate these things. So now here he is standing before 
the pagan king Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, I believe you. Um, and this is meant to be ironic, because this is, this is not a good thing. It's not a good thing that Joseph's brothers, the covenant people of God, reject and don't believe in God's messenger. But this pagan king does. This pagan king, king believes in God's messenger. So this is a major problem. Verse 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is, no so, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. By the way, it's important to add here that when Pharaoh says um, things like the spirit of God or God has shown you all this, um, we need to remember that Pharaoh himself, he, he thinks he's a god. Um, he, he's, he's a part of a pagan religion that in, in no way is he talking about um, Yahweh here. He, so we shouldn't get that, that confused. Um, he's saying that this is supernatural, sure, and maybe even um, divine, but he's not giving Yahweh any credit here. Um, verse 40, um, you shall be over my house and all my people, shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. So every house that Joseph is under prospers. Um, and what house should he be prospering? That's Jacob's. When we read Pharaoh say that you shall be over um, my house, what we should be thinking is wrong house. Um, this isn't a good thing. Verse 41. Um, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Remember seed, land, covenant. Um, what land is Joseph supposed to be in? Um, he should be in Canaan, in the land of promise, not here. We just, um, we just talked about Caleb, right? What land was he after? Um, he, he was trying to get back to the promised land. Why? Because God um, had promised his people the promised land, and, that, and that's what Caleb was after. And also, when we consider um, the overarching story of the whole Bible, um, the theological opposite uh, land of Canaan is Egypt. Egypt throughout the whole Bible doesn't represent or Egypt throughout the whole Bible does represent, um, represents oppression um, and, and wickedness. So Joseph here is in the wrong house, um, in the wrong land, and we're going to get to Joseph specifically, but this, this background is important to understand his identity. Um, so I know this is a character study, and we're getting there, but just hold on one second, because this, this background provided by, Mano by Moses is, is necessary. Um, so verse 42. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, bow the knee. Another really great irony here. I mean, how is Joseph identified at the beginning of the story in, in Genesis 37? It's by the robe that Jacob's father gives him, and it's by the dreams he has. Now he's being identified in Egypt wearing the wrong robe, and the pagan king says, bow down, bow down to Joseph, and Egypt gladly does it. Let's continue. Thus he, sit over, thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath-Paneah. Now, the, the pagan king here gives Joseph a pagan name. And you see um, the renaming of God's covenant people is never a good thing. In fact, it's, it's an insult to God. You know, it's like when Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, 
and Azariah, right, the Babylonians give them new names. Um, and this isn't a good thing. We don't say this is a great thing. This is, again, a major insult to God because their names represent an affiliation um, with God, an affiliation with Yahweh. Um, now, Joseph is given a name that affiliates him with a pagan kingdom. Let's continue reading. And he gave him in marriage Asnath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of Om. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Now he's married to a pagan wife, and not just any Egyptian, but a daughter of a pagan priest. Um, we know in Ezra 9 that this is actually an abomination, right? We, we hear the phrase in Ezra 9, put away these foreign wives, which has nothing um, to do with their ethnicity, or else Moses would be in trouble, uh, right? But, but it has everything to do with their theology. Um, so let's continue in the story. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put, it, he put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Jesus, or Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, here we get a really good glimpse into what and who Joseph is. Um, and, and Joseph himself is making the same point as the last paragraph. First, notice uh, that he names his sons um, Hebrew names, not Egyptian ones. Uh, this is a very important point. And Joseph very easily could have given, him, um, given his sons Egyptian names. If Joseph here, if we get a picture of Joseph here embracing the Egyptian culture and seeing his life around him now, as, as great favor and abundance, then he probably would have named them Egyptian names, but he doesn't. Um, Joseph here is identifying himself and his sons um, with the covenant. And we get a really good picture into Joseph's theology. He's identifying him and his offspring as covenant people. Um, this is an important note, and it's not just that they are Hebrew names, but also uh, the meaning of these Hebrew names. The first son's name is Manasseh, and... Um, the translation here, God has made me forget all my hardship in, in all my father's house. You know, um, so what would this look like? Um, maybe it would, it would go something like this. You know, hey, Zaph, I see you and your lovely pagan wife had a child. Yes, we have. Oh, man, that's great. You're just living the dream here in Egypt. Born as a peasant shepherd boy and now living in the greatest nation the world's ever seen. Got a wife and a child now riding around in the second chariot. Wow. What's your boy's name? Manasseh. Manasseh? Really? That sounds Hebrew. Well, it is Hebrew. Why would you give your boy a Hebrew name? Because I am a Hebrew. And because Pharaoh might be able to change my name, but he does not get to change my son's names. See, these sons are my children, um, and they're children of the covenant, just like me. 
well, this is interesting because um, why would you name your sons after the Hebrew people um, who abandoned you? Because God has made me forget, and I've let that go. Didn't they sell you into slavery? That's over with. I let that stuff go. They never came looking for you. They didn't come and find you. You're absolutely right. And I let that stuff go. See, Joseph here um, chose to be identified with the, with the covenant people of God as opposed to being identified with the enemies of God. Joseph also chose to view the circumstances of his life through the lens of God's covenant promises and not through the lens of his past pain. See, as Christians, it's important to remember and take away something here. We are redeemed people of God. Um, And indeed, um, we can relate here, right? Because Joseph went through immense pain. But the blood of Jesus covers that, right? Manasseh, that's a great name. Um, Now, if you thought that the first name um, of his son is powerful, um, just in case the Egyptians didn't get the message, here we go again, right? Ah, Zaph, I see you had another son. Guess you gave him a Hebrew name too. Yes, I gave him a Hebrew name. Um, What's his name mean? His name means that God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Affliction? Wait, hold on. (laughs) You became fruitful here in Egypt, right? Wouldn't the land of your affliction be the place where they hated you and actually thought of murdering you? Well, no, that's not the land of my affliction. This is the land of my affliction. Why? Because I am part of the covenant people of God, again. And the place for me is to be in the land of the covenant. I don't care how wealthy this land appears to be. There's no wealth like being in the presence of Yahweh. So anything outside of that and his presence is indeed the land of my affliction. Again, this is a great reminder for us. Joseph, um, Joseph is looking forward to a city whose maker and builder is God that simply pales in comparison to an Egypt, a Rome, an America, right? Just, just has, has nothing, um, nothing on it. And this is another um, great thing to, to have in mind, right? Wherever we live is the land of our affliction. This is not our home, and this is not as good as it gets. Our best day here um, pales in comparison to one day in glory. We are citizens of the new Jerusalem, and this isn't the new Jerusalem. But hold on, because we still have to be careful um, about how we do this. You see, Joseph is living in the same tension we are. Um, this is the land of my affliction, but he, he's still doing everything to the best of his ability and doing everything in his power to be a, to be a blessing to the land he's in, to where God's placed him. Um, Paul talks about this tension too, right? For me to live is Christ, um, but to die is gain. Heaven is our hope, and it is our home, surely. But in the meantime, while we're here, we man our post and advance the kingdom wherever the Lord has called us to be. We just never get too comfortable. No matter how good it may be, at the end of the day, this is the land of our affliction. You see, in looking back on these two paragraphs, um, the normally assumed takeaways that I think are typically um, taught from the Joseph story is, you know, maybe it's, 
be faithful like Joseph and you'll prosper or, you know, something along those lines. But Joseph is telling us rather directly um, that this is just untrue. You know, we don't see Joseph sitting back in his, in his second chariot and thinking, you know, if my brothers could see me now or, you know, mama, we made it, right? That, that's not the picture we get. Um, it's just not the reading. In fact, it's the total opposite, you know, and here's another good takeaway. Often, um, well, sometimes, you know, obedience and faithfulness, it can actually lead to um, unfavorable results. It can lead to suffering. Um, it can lead to great affliction. Um, but Joseph has a lens of, God, of, of the Lord's providence, and he's trusting in the Lord's providence um, to carry him through. And he set, he set his eyes on something far more greater than the circumstances around him. Um, and we're going to move forward in the story a bit because, um, you know, if we, we still want to, okay, what's the point of the Joseph story? We're going to turn to chapter 45, um, and we're going we're gonna to get a good picture about the point of all this. Now, as you get to chapter 45, um, here's what's happened in between chapter 41 um, and 45 here. So Joseph's brothers have run out of food, right, because there was the famine. Um, but they hear that there's food in Egypt. So they come to Egypt in order to get food. Joseph recognizes his brothers, but um, they don't recognize him. And so Joseph proceeds to test his brothers. Uh, the first test is tied to the very reason that Joseph, that, that Joseph was sold into slavery in the first place. Uh, one of the reasons that they hated Joseph was because Joseph was the son um, of the wife whom Jacob loved, right? That's what made him the favorite son. Jacob was a terrible father. And Jacob was open about this. He essentially says to his boys, hey, I, I love your mom, yours not so much, right? Um, he's my favorite, you guys not so much. But there was one more son born to the favorite wife, um, and that's Benjamin. When the brothers show up in Egypt, Benjamin isn't with them. So Joseph really, I mean, he has no idea. They, have they done away with him too? Um, because of that same jealousy, so he tests them. Um, he wants to know if Benjamin is still alive. Um, so he says, you need to bring all your brothers. He also tests them um, to see if their character has changed by keeping one of the brothers there in Egypt to see if they are going to abandon him, um, but they don't. And then there's a final test, um, and that is he, he plants the goods, he takes Benjamin, um, and he says, this one, Benjamin, he's going to jail. Um, so in the final test, one of the brothers distinguishes himself by basically saying, Take me instead of him. Now hold on to that um, and listen to what Joseph says, um, what, what he has to say about these events. So chapter 45, we're going to start in verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. I mean, <laughs> this would probably be pretty mind-blowing. I mean, can you imagine the scene if you're his brothers? Um, I mean, 
The little brother is about to be kept here in prison. Stuff is showing up in our bags. Um, our dad is literally going to die. I mean, he's going to drop dead when he hears this news. Um, this Egyptian dude that's been putting us through all this now all of a sudden says, hey, I'm Joseph. I'm the brother you sold into slavery. Um, right? So, and he asks, you know, is our father alive? I mean, they're, they're speechless. Verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came, they, came, they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now they're probably thinking, I mean, <laughs> um, well, our dad's going to die, but we're probably going to die first, right? <laughs> I mean, that, that's probably the thought here. Verse 5, um, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So Joseph says here that God sent him. And God sent him to save um, to save them, but it's more specific than that. Remember, seed, land, covenant. So the fall happens in chapter 3, and then there is a covenant promise, um, and the covenant promise comes in the form of a curse, right? The curse of the serpent. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. You're going to bruise his heel, and he's going bru- to bruise your head. God makes this promise that there is one coming who is going to undo this curse, the next chapter, we have the first murder. The seed of the serpent, Cain, kills the seed of the woman, Abel. Do not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, right? First John 3.12. Well, now we have a problem because, you know, we might think, oh, the promised seed's been murdered. But that's not, but that's all right. Because then we're introduced to Seth, and then Genesis chapter 5, there are ten generations between Adam and Noah via the godly line of Seth. So, the promised, lead, the promised seed's been preserved, right? Now, Noah has three sons, but only one uh, can be uh, the promised seed, we think. Find out, okay, maybe it's Shem. Eventually, we come to Abram. Um, is he the promised seed? Abram has two sons, uh, but only one of them can be uh, the seed, and it's Isaac. Born miraculously when his mother um, is past seed-bearing age. Then all of a sudden with Isaac, there are two twins who come. Uh, which one is going to be a seed? The firstborn? No, it's actually the one that comes after. Um, so it's not Esau, it's Jacob. And now with Jacob, there are 12 sons. Uh, which one of these sons? Could it be one of them? Well, we don't know. And it seems as though the story is focusing on Joseph. So you might think it's Joseph, but he's not. Joseph is here just as an individual God's using in the providential plan to preserve the seed. Well, then who's the promised seed then? Um, The promised seed um, identifies himself just before Joseph identifies himself to his brothers. And interestingly interestingly enough, the way the seed is identified is telling to why um, it's him. So Benjamin is about to be kept behind, and Judah says to Joseph, Um, that it's going to kill his father if he's kept behind. So essentially, Judah um, offers himself as a substitute in the place of 
the one who his father loves, which is exactly what the true promised seed would eventually do. Um, so just like um, another promised seed, which don't run too fast, because Judah has another son who identifies himself. Um, and you see there's Judah, Judah's greater son, David. And we know famously, um, he identifies himself as a significant player in this when he one day goes down into the valley where a giant is challenging Israel, right? He says, send me a man um, to fight with me and I'll represent my people. You, you send me someone who will represent yours. And that's King David uh, before he's King David. He defeats Goliath on behalf of all of Israel um, as their covenant representative. So Israel is victorious because um, David is victorious. But then there's a greater David who identifies himself as the promised seed to which all the other seeds point to. And he does what Judah and what David does in one fell swoop. He offers himself as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice for the sons whom his father loves. And then through dying a death that they deserve goes into the great valley and defeats the enemy on behalf of all those who are in him by faith. You see, Joseph's story all of a sudden becomes much more significant than we thought. You see, this is a story about gospel preservation. And at the heartbeat is the great redemptive narrative. Joseph didn't go to Egypt to get rich and famous. He went there so that Judah didn't starve, so that David could be born, so that Jesus, the true promised seed, could save his people. That's the Joseph story. That's the heart of the gospel. Um, the providence of God is here. Um, and this is such good news. You know, some of Joseph's famous last, last words in Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring, about, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I'll provide, provide for you and your little ones. You see, God uses slavery, he uses prison, he uses famine, um, and things like these uh, would often make us say, you know, why? Why, God? How is this fair? You know, and Joseph easily could have thought these things. He could have grumbled. He could have complained. But um, God's providence says, don't you dare. Um, you don't see the painted, you don't see the picture, you know, painted full like, like I do. God is saying, you're in the pit so that I can save you. You're here in Egypt so that God can preserve his people for his salvific purposes. So because of that, um, we can trust God. That's God's providence. It's God's providence that gets us through our darkest days. So we had to trust him. Um, and I encourage you to read the story. I mean, read Genesis, uh, the whole book again. I mean, think about, you know, it's the Christmas season. Think about all it took just for Christ to be born. I mean, meditate on that for the next few weeks. How about the rest of the year? You know, I mean... When we think about the providential plan of God and the steps it took for Christ to be born, um, it's, it's mind-blowing. Um, and on your outline, there's some other scriptures there listed. Hebrews 11, um, there's a portion in Acts as well. Um, if you, you know, go back to the fall in, in, in Genesis um, 3 um, and see how the book of Genesis um, develops and then, and then 
when you get to the Joseph story, see, see how it ends and, and what God's trying to say to us. Um, there's also, you know, Vodi Bakum actually gave uh, a, a sermon on Joseph. He says what I just said, just better and more. Um, if you want to check that out, too. There's a book he wrote as well, um, which is good listed there. If, if you want to develop a better, you know, theology of suffering, um, there's a podcast list podcast listening there that's that's pretty good um it's long jared knows about those <laughs> um are there any questions any any comments anything you guys would like to share i think it's uh interesting some of the transportation methods that god chooses um, I always get frustrated, you know, when I'm flying somewhere and it's like I'm going from like here to Chicago, but I have a layover in Phoenix. It's like that's kind of out of the way. But if you look at some of the ways that God moves people from one place to another, like Jonah, like gets transported via whale, you know, or a fish, like that's kind of an odd transportation choice. Um, even Jesus, you know, after he's born, he ends up going to Egypt and then, you know, it's kind of a weird route for him to get into ministry. And then with Joseph as well. You know, how's, how's God going to get Joseph into the house of Pharaoh to, you know, do this work? Well, you know, via being sold into slavery and then going to prison. You know, it's even further out of the way than connecting in Phoenix. Yeah. Um, but it, I think it's interesting that, you know, Joseph kind of got to see how God was using him and he could kind of put the pieces together and at least have a partial picture of how he was being used. And I think a lot of times we don't really have that. And, you know, we have to trust in faith that the route that God's taking us and the, the things that... Um, you know, some of the sufferings and hardships that these things are for a reason, you know, and we may not always see the reason or understand how they fit together, but if we're being faithful to God, he's using us for something. And I think we can take encouragement in that. Definitely. Any other thoughts? It, uh, We've had this theme, actually, in, in both sermon and Sunday school the last couple of weeks, too, about trusting God's promises, and this is obviously just another example of that. Here's someone who trusted, regardless of the outward circumstances, knowing that God said this, it's going to come true. I don't know when or how. He never would have guessed that he was going to get thrown in a pit and sold into slavery, and that that was how it's all going to come about. Nobody knew that. His brothers certainly never would have imagined that, but... God has a way when we can't not see a way, and but if we just trust Him, regardless of what's going on out around us, that's a, that's a key takeaway I think as well. Yeah, it most certainly was a an unusual dichotomy because the contrast you put on it from the way God implemented his sovereign will and his purpose through the perversion from him being under the lordship of Pharaoh and all the promises that had just been given, the contrasting from, the, from being in prison, the blessings to the curse, and they show themselves real clear through the story, all the way to the end to the, to the blessing of being aware. That was the other thing, being very aware that God was behind all of it. That was really unique. I would encourage everyone to continue to read this because of the recap that you gave as far as just yeah. um, the titles, all the subject titles, everything was great. I mean, it really was. It flowed real sweet.
Morning, Sam. I thought uh, I would echo a little bit of what Derek said. Um, really appreciate it's Genesis 41, Genesis 45. And then, did I understand, you know, you're, I thought you made a really good key, a really good point about Judah. Am I understanding that right? Judas stepping in, being the sacrifice. Right. Which then David, and then Christ. Right. Um, <clears throat> small little thing. I, where is that found in Genesis? Is it 45? Genesis 45. Sorry, I have this somewhere. No, no, don't, I, you know, I, yeah, and I'm not I'll, even. You want it after? Yeah. Okay. I like that, Sam. Uh, uh, you, at the end of chapter 44, 41. good. 44? Okay. At the end of chapter 44. Yeah, no, that, I, I just, I was so excited about that point that you brought out. Yeah. I just want to make sure I was focused on that. Um, thank you, Sam. Yep. Really appreciate it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this story. We thank you for your providence that we see in your word. We thank you that we can trust you. We thank you that through um, dire circumstances, you brought about our Savior, Christ. Um, now, as we gather to worship you, would um, we focus on Christ? Um, would we remember your providence? Would we remember your promises, Lord? 